You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Create Photography Retreat. Join several hosts from the Master Photography Podcast Network, along with well-known photographers like Nick Page and Greg Benz, at the third annual Create Photography Retreat. It's going to be in Las Vegas, March 28th to 30th. If you've never been around hundreds of photographers just as passionate as you are, you really have to join us and have that experience. Tickets are on sale over at createphotographyretreat.com. They're only $387 through October 1st, 2018. So you got to get over there, get that early bird pricing of only $387. Head over again to createphotographyretreat.com and get your tickets today. Welcome to the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You're joined by thousands of photographers listening to the show all on the same journey to master their photography. I'm Jeff Harmon, the host for this episode, and joining me at the roundtable today is portrait photographer Phenom, Connor Hedge. Do you like that, Connor Phenom? <laughs> oh, that's, oh, that's giving me way too much credit. <laughs> no, I don't think so. So, I, I mean, right off the top, I wanted to kind of bring that up, but bra- brag a little about uh, about the podcast there that, that you and Erica do, Portrait Session. You were featured in an F-Stoppers article recently here in September 2018. A lot of praise for you and Erica helping portrait photographers with some really good content there. So, congratulations on that. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, that, that was pretty cool for them to, to feature us. We were one of a relatively short list of podcasts, and it, it was kind of cool to have made that list. Yeah, absolutely. So if you uh, have not checked out Portrait Session and you are a portrait photographer, it's a must. You've got to get over there and, and check that out. <laughs> uh, we'll have uh, some links in the show notes to the episode. You can just search in any of the podcatchers. Go search for Portrait Session, and you should be able to find it pretty easily. All right, Connor, besides adding to the conversation here, wherever you want to jump in, <laughs> I'm going to need your help. I want, okay, <laughs> I want to make sure I don't dive too deep into the super technical world. Uh, we're, we have kind of a technical topic. Yeah. And I want to make sure I stay out of the technical. <laughs> we, we, it's okay if we get technical. We're allowed to get technical here. It's just, uh, yeah, we all try and keep us at least in a yeah, user-friendly area of conversation as much yeah. as I can. <laughs> Okay, sounds good. So, so yeah, that's that's your, it's your fault if I go in the weeds. <laughs> okay, just so okay, you know. I'm I'm gonna be on you throughout this whole thing, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so today we're gonna talk about uh, something that Connor and I actually talked about. I think the last time we did a, a show together, and yeah. um, it's it's ETTR exposed to the right. And since you know it's a there's a four letter acronym for it, you know right off the bat it's this technical thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and I think Connor, you and I are kind of on opposite teams here, um, based on what you you told yeah. me. Just little brief discussion. Um, is that right? You're you're uh, you don't like ETTR. Yes and no is is my answer. Uh, like I don't dislike ETTR. It, like I actually do it when I do certain types of photography. I just think that it's. Um, I hear quite a few photographers putting that as something that they. Oh yeah, I gotta do it this way. And I'm just. I don't feel like that. I. In fact, sometimes I ETTL just a little bit um, uh-huh. for certain circumstances. So I. I don't think it's this like golden rule that only people who are mastering their photography know how to do or anything like that. So I, yes, it's useful, but I just, I am not like a huge praiser of ETTR as a technique. Okay. And that's perfect 
because we kind of need to represent both sides here because I'm very much on team ETDR. So, <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to go through it. We're going to talk through kind of what the, the technique is. And um, I, I want to start off with kind of as brief an explanation as I can muster. And so keep me honest with <laughs> not diving too deep again. <laughs> Um, so, so ETTR, let, let's, let's go very, very briefly there. So again, ETTR stands for exposed to the right. Mm-hmm. And, um, I want to spend so, so little time on this. So I got to figure out how I'm going to, I'm going to say it, but I'd imagine most listeners of the podcast are familiar with like light meter exposure scale. It's the, it, it helps you get kind of understand how you're going to set your aperture, shutter speed and ISO to get proper exposure. It's, it's one of those little scales. When you look through the viewfinder, like you put the camera up to your eye in case people don't know what viewfinder is, uh, or even in live mode, it's, it's there too, live view. Uh, it, it goes from like the minus three to plus three it has lots of little scale indicators there. And you, you can kind of see a line moving across that scale as you play around with shutter speed and aperture and ISO. And, and that's your exposure, your exposure scale. Yep. All right. So most of the time your objective when you're when you're doing photography is you want to get the proper exposure you and and most of the time you're trying to get that in the middle that's kind of the objective at the center there the zero mark you want to try to get it there and you're going to make some other decisions about what settings you're going to use to get it there but as you so you might decide something like aperture first because of your depth of field consideration and then you're going to dial in a shutter speed that helps you to get that onto the zero and that's kind of the the objective for most of the time um, then there's yeah. questions that you're, you come up against, like, you know, do I make the aperture number bigger or smaller to get it to zero? Do I slow down the shutter to get it to zero? It, it was really hard for me to remember that kind of stuff when I was first getting going. I don't know if you remember that, Connor, but I, oh, I very, yeah, no, it wasn't I, very long I ago. I definitely <laughs> remember that as well. It wasn't that long ago for me either. <laughs> I, it, and it took to the point like I, I wrote down some notes so that I could remember like, okay, aperture could do this uh to see how that changes it or do and shutter speed and and i i I took notes as i read things online or as i listened to podcast or whatever on settings to try like an initial settings which people would share settings and say okay i'm gonna try that first and then i'm gonna look at the light meter and i'm gonna try to adjust from there and and it, it my objective was just trying to get it on zero all right so ettr is kind of throwing that out the window a little bit um, because because on purpose you are deciding that you're going to go to the right of that zero and um, and so you <laughs> I have a lot of photo taco episodes because there's some other factors involved here in fact the, the the whole topic of ETTR there's a lot of technical details that go into this and I'm going to go through some of it in this episode but there's a lot more information that we just don't have time for so uh, there's a bunch of links to some photo taco episodes I've got and they'll be in the show notes um, some of them are about the uh, the light metering yeah. and the different modes that you can do for light metering and and, uh, and that affects this. So uh, go go check out those um, those photo talk episodes if you need more help with like light metering. Uh, I'll, I'll probably mention a few other things, but basically that's that's what ETTR is. You are deliberately making a decision to overexpose your photo, just a little bit, and not too much. Just yes, yeah. right. We don't, and and that's really going to be the key to this discussion. Is you absolutely must not go over that. <laughs> Yeah, over that exactly. Thing. All right, so 
that's kind of the very briefest way I can think of to describe ETTR. Now you might wonder, well, why? Because we worked so hard when I was a beginner. It was all <laughs> I thought about was how do I get that stupid little line to line up in the middle so that it's a good exposure, <laughs> especially because then I take it to the computer and so, most of the time you're like, I swear I got it in the middle. And then on the computer, like, oh, it's so dark. Why is it still so dark? And, um, and yeah, yeah, it was such a massive struggle to get there. Yeah. So, so people might be wondering, well, why would you, you want to deliberately overexpose the shot? That does not make any sense. You want to get it right. And in, in some cases, overexposing too much is really a problem. Um, yeah, like absolutely. If you take it too far, then you're going it, to, it's, it's blowing out the highlights is, is how a lot of photographers will put it. And that's a huge, huge problem. We'll, we'll go through it more. The opposite where you underexpose is actually something you can recover from way better than overexposing. So not only are you one, maybe wondering like, well, why would you want to do ETTR? But if you do it wrong and you overexpose it too much, your, your shot's going to be dead. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because you can't, you can't recover from the highlights being blown out like you can with the shadows and the darker areas um, because just the way that the imaging technology works, you can, there's a lot more room there to recover from like underexposure than there is overexposure. Is that your experience too, Connor? Yeah, no, exactly the point. And honestly, a large portion of why I am a fan of not that, um, of of not using ETTR, but there are times in which uh, I can absolutely see an argument for it as well. Okay. So there's, there's tools that you can use. And that's kind of the whole purpose of what I wanted this episode to be is outlining how do you approach that line and not cross it for overexposure? And But first, let's go through why. And I don't want to dive into the technical details too much here. Um, so I, I do have an ETTR Photo Taco episode. So if you want to hear some more technical details about it, you can go listen to that podcast episode. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes. But basically, um, w- with ETTR, you your objective is to make the shot the brightest it can possibly be without overexposing the so much that you have like entirely white pixels on the screen. And the reason is that's how the digital imaging works. It is the highest quality from the sensor when you have the very brightest photo you can. And, but you, you have to go right up to that line and not go past it. <laughs> if you go past it, it's it's a point of no return, and you're going to start losing information that you just can't get back. Yeah. So so there's some features there. There's uh, blinkies is one of the common things that I'm sure most photographers have seen. Uh, it doesn't come enabled usually on your camera when you first get it, but you can go turn that on. Every manufacturer calls it a different name, so that's why we're just calling it blinkies. <laughs> it won't be called blinkies, <laughs> but you can look up in your manual uh, some way of looking at like how highlight alerts are on, or some way of that your camera has of knowing. If you go search on Google for like your camera and the word blinkies, you'll probably find something that'll tell you too how to turn this on. But it's it's the way that you can look at your LCD screen, and if there's stuff blinking when that feature is enabled. It it like blinks on and off. That's your camera telling you the areas, the pixels on the screen that are so bright that they are pure white and are overexposed to the point where you might not be able to get it back in post. So 
ETTRs taking it right up to that point, but not crossing the line. So you have a lot of that on your screen because you do end up with better. You'll end up with higher image quality with how the sensors work and how files get written to your memory card. There's kind of a combination there between the two. So does that, do you think that makes sense, Connor, about why someone might do ETTR? Yeah, honestly. I, and I, I, given, I have to admit, I read your show notes before you said it just now, but um, that was something that I didn't really realize was a big part of why people do ETTR. I didn't realize that from a performance standpoint um, that you are improving stuff. For me, um, I think the reason why I've always felt so anti-ETTR, um, and, I, and I, I honestly, I'm over-exaggerating how much I dislike or don't use this. I, I do use it <laughs> okay. a fair amount, but I've kind of leaned towards the, I'd rather be cautious and not lose detail in my highlights and have to pull things up from shadows and, and that sort of thing. So I... Honestly, now I realize, okay, maybe I'm actually sacrificing a bit of the quality of my image by not doing ETTR more, but at the same time, I'm still not entirely sold on I should be doing this all the time, 100% of the time. Sometimes, especially as a professional, I'd rather play it safe and make sure that I have everything I need in the shot the way I need it um, and lose just a little bit of quality rather than pushing for quality and then possibly making a mistake because I was already on that razor's edge of going way too overexposed. Right, right. Yeah, it's not for everyone. So I love it because I feel like it helps me pull the most out of my camera. I shoot a crop sensor camera. A lot of people, you know, they, they, don't, they think there's such limitations with crop sensors that they jump to full frame in order to try to fix image quality issues. And I think that there's, there's not as great a difference between those two things if you actually know how to use your camera than there is uh, otherwise. And one, of, I think it's one of the reasons I've been able to be very happy with a crop sensor because... I, I feel like I have really learned how to use my camera and how to get the very most out of it. Now, could I get more out of a full frame? Possibly. That might be true. Uh, for me, the the cost is the, the cost. And yeah, well, pretty much the cost is the biggest reason why <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> and um, but also because I don't feel like and, and again, it's because I think I've learned so much about how to use my camera that uh, that I can pull every last ounce of image quality out of what I got that I don't feel limited by my camera right now. I still feel like there's so much more I can learn how to do better with lighting, how to do better with with all kinds of techniques that the camera is not the limiting factor on my image quality. It, yeah. It, now, that's not to say a, a newer camera might not also help. Sure, it probably could. But I still have so much more I feel like I can learn. And the cost difference is so great that to me, as a hobbyist photographer, I'm fine in continuing down my path on with the camera I've got right now. It's, it's not a problem. And ETTR is one of those features that I think really helps me. So it's why I wanted to go over it today. That And, and you sparked this with the... Uh, the episode a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, no, and I mean, it makes a lot of sense uh, to be able to use your camera to the best of your ability and knowing that information and being able to, to really like think that through and take the time to push that. And especially if you're being cautious with blinkies, it seems like they, there's actually a lot of really good reason to do so. And that's a good way to make the most of the camera that you have rather than upgrading. Um, honestly, right. I think that the reason I upgraded to a full frame camera was because I realized I liked shooting really dark subjects um, or like 
like I, I like shooting with lots of black and lots of contrast uh-huh. and then I'd uh-huh. have to kind of play around with my shadows afterwards and in that instance, honestly, I think even there, I could probably in studio do more ETTR to have gotten more out of my camera before I upgraded. Um, I probably could have saved myself some stress and time and money um, in upgrading when I did and waited until it was actually a more appropriate time. So I, I think that this is really great for somebody who's in that crop sensor feeling like they have to have a full frame for this, for whatever reason. Um, realistically, you're, you're right. They're, they're very similar. They're very close. And the, the major difference I've noticed between the two cameras is, is your noise performance. And if you can kind of combat having to pull up shadows, which I know that this is more of a Canon issue than an everyone issue. Right. Um, <laughs> right. But you know, if you can avoid something, some of the noise in your shadows by just being a little bit more conscientious of the way that you're exposing and do some ETTR exposing to the right. You're you're probably going to be able to make your camera's body last just that much longer um, without f- ha- letting that gas, that gear acquisition syndrome take over and force you into buying something that you might not otherwise want to spend money on. Sure. Well, and and like a lot of the techniques that we cover on the podcast here, it's not for everybody. Like the, the whole goal for everybody should be to have phenomenal results. I I get very good images. That's, that's where we all want to be. How we arrive at that is not material. (laughs) It doesn't matter if it's because you have, you know, $20,000 in camera equipment and that's what makes stellar images. Okay. That's great. If it's, no, I actually didn't have to spend that much money on it. And I learned a bunch of techniques that helped me get there. Fine. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's all about like, did you get the images that you want to get? Are you getting the images you want to get? Are you progressing too? Are you still improving your photography over time? And so we, we try to share a lot of techniques that will help with that tools that are provided. Not everyone is going to be something that applies to everyone. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I want to go over this as a tool that photographers can use, but it doesn't mean that everyone should be immediately going out there. Can I, um, can so I, in fact, there's some limitations with- and that's what I want to talk about in this. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. The, uh, the, I, you just you sparked a thing in my mind now. I believe in exactly what you said so much that I literally talked someone out of buying my camera earlier this week. I'm selling my <laughs> Canon 5D Mark II. It's a full-frame camera. And I believe what we were just talking about to the degree that I somebody messaged me and said, like, oh, yeah, I want to get that because it's definitely going to make my photos better. And I, instead of being the guy that's trying to sell my camera and being a good salesman about it, I was like, wait, what do you mean? Why? And he he said, well, I mean, I looked at your photos and your photos are really good. So clearly if you're taking them with this camera, it's a much better camera. And it's like, no, it's so much not that. And I told (laughs) this guy like, you know what? Like if you can just afford it and you can buy my camera, like I'm happy to sell it to you, but just know like, this is you, this is not the camera. And it's about the way that you use it more than anything else. So knowing techniques like this are just going to matter that much more. Sorry. That had nothing to do with what we're talking about. It was just a fun anecdote having to do with this exact same thing. Sure, sure. It, it is perfect. It's it's a discussion. We, I think we want. That's the the kind of culture we want to foster here on Ma- Master Photography. Yep, is that we're all on a journey. We're all trying to improve together, and hopefully, none of us ever feel like we've we're done. Because <laughs> to me, that would be sad. If you're never, if you've hit a point where you're not progressing, and you don't have things that you're doing to improve your photography and, and master this craft then that's kind of sad because your journey's over. And um, 
I don't know how long you can, I, I personally wouldn't be able to stay with it very long if that was how I felt about it. So we're trying so hard with all of our episodes and what we do, all the topics that we choose to cover to help people to, to have that. And hopefully that's a, a, a culture we can foster here with, with our listeners. Absolutely. All right. I want to go over some caveats or some limitations associated with ETTR. And there's, like I said, you got to go right up to that line, but you don't want to pass that line. If you, if you overexpose it so much, then it's, it's going to ruin your photo. And you, there's really nothing you're going to be able to do about it. In post, it won't matter, at least today, as the technology exists today. Once you've crossed that line, it's toast. It's over. Um, so I'm going to go over some tips about how you can do that. But first, we do need to thank some sponsors for this episode. If you're anything like me and you're looking for a professional printing service to turn your photos into canvas prints, you want someone who's reliable, who's using the highest quality canvas, and who is affordable. Well, good news, Royal Canvas is all three of those things. They print in 11 colors, use premium canvas that doesn't crack when it's stretched, and they ship super fast, usually within two or three days of ordering. Plus, if you ever need to contact them, you'll be talking to a real person who can help you out with accurate information and resolve any problems quickly. With Royal Canvas, you're getting a premium quality canvas, archival ink, and an expert stretch. So go ahead and give it a try. Go to royalcanvas.com master and you'll get 40% off of a single canvas print and an additional 10% off of poster or metal prints. Or if you'd like a sample, feel free to email service at royalcanvas.com and they'll send you a free canvas color swatch. That's royalcanvas.com slash master for 40% off of a single canvas print and an additional 10% off of poster or metal prints. All right. So now I want to say, again, I'm on, I'm full on team ETTR because <laughs> I, I really, I am absolutely convinced that it has enabled me to get the very most out of my camera. Maybe part of the reason I have said so many times that I don't feel like I'm limited by my camera. Um, my skill, I'm still very much learning things, but I, I seriously think that ETTR has helped there. I use ETTR in pretty much every shot that I do. And I have for years now. I, I learned the technique uh, a, a while back, several years ago, and I have been applying it. Like literally every photo I take, I am applying it. That's crazy, However, man. <laughs> I have learned how to use it appropriately. And I think that's kind of the big key when you first, and I didn't at first, at first when I had it, I did not understand exactly how to approach this. And I ruined shots. I <laughs> absolutely nuked shots with unrecoverable highlights that made it so that the photo was just not even usable. And so, um, so I, I want to go through kind of how it is. I've learned to do it. it the things I'm going to walk through in a minute here are kind of specific to what I've learned with my camera. So they may not fully apply to every camera, every situation, but it's really helped me as I've honed in on this technique to make sure that ETTR is, is applied in a way that is helping my images and not going so far that it's ruining them. And that's a fine line to have fine line to, to, to cross there. Um, so <sighs> Let, let's go through the list that that's let's do that next that'll be the the thing that i want to do i have six well five things i almost did six because the fifth one's really long but i have five kinds of <laughs> things uh tools that you can use to help you not cross that line and and connor i want you to help like give me some experiences that you've had with this too yeah absolutely um 
All right, so number one, I, I just don't rely on the LCD for exposure. I've seen this. Uh, <sighs> I've seen photographers making this mistake, and I have been actually... I don't know about harassed being the right word, but I've had a lot of <laughs> listeners uh, object to the technical approach that I take with photography. They're saying like, why does this even matter? You, you talk about and the other things are going to be kind of technical things I'm going to talk about. Why does it even matter? All you have to do is you take the shot, you look on the back. If it's too bright, you change your settings and you take the shot again. If it's too dark, you change your settings, you take your shot again. And... My unless you have the blinkies feature turned on where that is actually helpful information besides that 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 LCD is absolutely lying to you yeah <laughs> it is not telling you the truth about exposure um, it may be some rare case where you have just the right lighting conditions and your LCD settings are just right to match it maybe it would be helpful but here let me give you an example of how this completely failed me when I was first learning how to do this so I had an interest in doing astrophotography um, very shortly after I got my camera. <laughs> I really wanted to do it, but I knew the city lights here in Harriman, Utah, it was, they're, they're too, way too bright. And so the, all that light pollution was going to make it. I couldn't really do anything in my backyard. And so, um, so I, I spent months uh, reading. I, I got my camera in the wintertime. I wasn't going to go out to some remote area in the middle of winter and try to get some astro shots. I wasn't that dedicated to this. <laughs> but um, so I, I and I didn't know how to do it yet. So I was researching and I was I was finding lots of places where they would give you kind of settings to use on your camera so that as, as a good starting point, they most of them made it clear like this is just a starting point. You're going to have to tweak it based on what you're shooting, where you're shooting, that, those kinds of things. And I didn't know enough to be able to understand exactly what that was going to be. But I had I had done enough research that I finally figured out kind of some settings that I wanted to use. And then I, I went up with uh, with some Boy Scouts on a, on a summer camp. And that I had planned, that's exactly how I'm going to go use this. I'm going to make sure I have good charged batteries. And I was going to be up in the high mountains here in a place called the Uintas in Utah for uh, five nights. And so I'd have five nights worth of chances to try to get some astrophotography. And I was so excited to do it. So I, I got up there, I get out my camera and I pulled out my notes because I was new enough of this. I could not remember aperture shutter speed ISO what what I should be using and um, I even had a lens that I bought I, I bought a, a Tamron no a Tokina a special Tokina lens it was uh, one of the cheapest I could find the least expensive I could find so I had all this planned out I took a shot with the those recommended settings that I'd written down and then I looked at the LCD I thought oh I nailed it I got this. This is amazing. <laughs> Look at those stars. And, and I was just shocked. Like, oh my goodness. And you know what I did? I stopped there. I didn't take another shot. Like the whole five nights. I didn't take another. Because I was like, I got it. Oh uh, there's, no reason to, <laughs> there's no reason to go set up my tripod. This is awesome. I can't <laughs> believe this. All right. So I go back home. I'm so excited to get this picture because it looks so good on that LCD screen. And I, I get it on in, uh, in Lightroom, and I was so disappointed. <laughs> the noise was insane. The stars were not round. They weren't close to bright enough. It was a mess. It was terrible. And that LCD had no basis in reality on what I actually had in my camera. And that's a challenging shooting situation. But I think it's a good way to illustrate that the LCD 
it's helpful for some things. It's helpful to kind of see poses. It's helpful to see if eyes are open. It's helpful with the blinkies. It's helpful if you can turn on the histogram, which we're going to talk about in a second. There are things that it's helpful for. It is not helpful for judging exposure by just how it looks on the LCD itself. Have you had a similar experience there, Connor? Yeah, no, that, that's happened. In fact, I had an interesting one that was, I mean, thankfully it was nothing horrible at all. Um, it was something where I was actually well aware of the fact that my LCD is not reliable source for information. It was actually just the, just this past weekend. I was shooting at a golf tournament, outdoor midday sun. It was horrible. I had the people facing their backs to the sun so I could have their face entirely in shadow. And if I were to go off of my LCD, CD, I would have just blown out the entire background entirely because the people themselves looked just like silhouettes. They looked so dark, so black. But again, I was looking at everything in a, under the midday sun on my LCD and sure enough i i got onto my computer and uploaded the photos and yeah they were they were a little bit dark but i knew that they were going to be a little bit dark i didn't want to blow out my background entirely so that's that's uh-huh. why i had it said that way and right, it was just right. a, a simple shadow recover i was perfectly fine i was well aware of it but had i been looking at my lcd and going oh my gosh they're so dark i would have just kept on opening up and opening up until i was overexposing everything around them they would have had halos of light f- coming in all around their face because I would have at that point just completely blown out my highlights, completely overexposed in order to get a proper exposure for them. So yeah, this is, this is something that I've experienced. I've actually been in the, in your same shoes with astral photography, thinking that it looks great and getting home and being like, wow, this is really not good. Maybe I'm not meant to do this thing. <laughs> and, and I mean, I shoot in a studio. I shoot, with on on black backgrounds a lot of the time and i shoot very contrasty so i'll have times where i'll be like oh man i i've just lost all detail what like everything is gone on the shadow side of the face i need to to overexpose stuff or i need to bump my exposure up a bit more and then i I upload it to the computer and realize like oh you know what i actually wasn't (laughs) I, I got that right, entirely right. wrong. It was perfect before, and then I started overexposing and uh, maybe pushing it just a little bit too far, probably in the range of what you're talking about as being good with your ETTR, but I was not where I would have normally shot had I been more cognizant of the fact that I was shooting in studio and that I had those things, and had I not been completely basing my decisions just on the LCD um, for my exposure. Right. Okay. So that the, the point number one is your LCD lies to you. Don't rely on that. Especially when we're talking about you're approaching this like razor thin line between just overexposing it enough. You're not blowing out highlights and having it be too much. You don't want to judge that line using your LCD. That is a terrible, terrible idea. Um, all right. So number two, uh, use your light meter. That's it's a much better tool compared to the LCD than it is than than yeah than the LCD. It's a much much better tool than the LCD. Now there are some big caveats here because there's lots of different metering modes that can affect this. Yes, and you've got to make sure you know how to use those metering modes, and you've got to make sure um, that you select the right one for the right scene of what you're doing so that you can get there. Um, and it's really only, I, I would encourage you if you're going to do ETTR, 
the light metering is kind of going to help you get the starting point and then you need to do some more steps and we're going to talk about them afterwards so that you can really zero in on where you want to have your exposure be for ETTR. So light meter, what what's your experience with light meter? What what suggestions do you have, Connor? Um, you know, honestly, I don't know that I have any specific suggestions beyond just make sure you're paying attention to it because that is right. that is the thing it's going to tell you whether or not you are exposing properly under or over. Um, I think that you just need to make sure if you're in a scene that um, is particularly bright. So say you're out shooting in snow or you're shooting against a white background um, with constant lights or if you're shooting against uh, something where it's really dark and you're you're intentionally having dark elements, just pay attention to the fact that, you know what, your meter is going to tell you you're overexposed in that bright scenario and if you expose to neutral, everything's going to turn gray. Your snow is going to look gray and vice versa. If, if you're paying attention to um, your dark situation, you'll know that, you know what, when I meter this, it should look really dark and that's okay um so not using that as neutral is always the best for every situation just paying attention to the situation that you're in and whether or not the meter is accurate for that situation right so there's every camera i've seen i don't know if there's exceptions but every camera i've seen has lots has three or four maybe even more choices on metering modes Mm -hmm. of how your light meter in your camera is going to work and uh, I did a photo talk episode about it where I explained the, specifically the Canon. I think it was both Canon and Nikon because they have the same number of modes in general. Uh, they just call them different things because we can't call things the same. <laughs> that won't work. Of course and, not. <laughs> right. And uh, so so there's a, a photo talk episode all about that. If you want to learn more about how the metering modes work and how that affects your light meter. And uh, it, it makes a massive difference. Um, I, I've got this down enough that I, I kind of know exactly how I want to use it depending on what I'm shooting. It helped me recently. I, I did a family shoot uh, a week ago here in Utah where there was this really, really smoky uh, background that w- oh, made it look yeah. kind of neat. And um, and I wanted to have that background. Now, a lot of times I'll be like, yeah, I don't care if I blow it out. I'll just replace it with like a nice blue sky. But the family really wanted to have the smoky background there because it's a big deal. There's these forest fires all around us here in Utah right now. And it's made a, a really, really smoky sky. It looks different. They kind of wanted it in their family photo. They thought it would be kind of a cool thing to have. So uh, I used metering. I knew which mode to go to. And I, I was able to to really kind of nail the shot with that. Plus some of the other things I'm going to talk about uh, helped me to, to be able to get that one properly exposed. All right. Number three. Um, and this is one that's way more technical, but use histograms. That is my third thing here. So, and I'm, I'm going steadily between, um, the things that are more helpful and more accurate. So LCD, we started off with is completely inaccurate. You cannot judge your exposure based on how bright or dark it looks on the LCD screen. The second one is your light meter. Much more helpful. It still can be challenging depending on what metering mode you've used. But now the third one, we're getting even to more accuracy and it's the histogram. And so it's much closer to truth about the exposure. And it's, it's part of the reason I am way excited at some point to go to mirrorless. 
Because today with my DSLR, the only way I get the histogram is taking the shot and then hitting the play button and seeing the preview on the back of the camera where the histogram can show up. And in mirrorless, you can actually get that in the viewfinder in real time as you're taking the shot. And that's going to decrease the number of shots I have to take and chimping and, and looking at and changing settings um, at, in between shots. And, and it's, it's going to be really nice. I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, to use the histogram, you judge exposure in addition to the info from the light meter. So you kind of can merge the two together. You're seeing the light meter in the viewfinder or in live view. It gets you started. You get into a, a place where you think you're pretty good. And then you can use the histogram to kind of confirm that, maybe change it and, and go a little further to the right. To, you do a couple of uh, clicks over on the shutter button or the aperture and, and try to get there and, and then take another picture and look at the histogram and kind of see what's going on. So I, I absolutely love histograms. Um, I have to mention two things that can make the histogram light to you as well. And so the first thing that can make a histogram lie to you about exposure, you have to remember they come from the JPEGs. No matter, even if you're shooting raw, it's using the info from the JPEG inside of that raw file to get your histogram created. So um, there is, I can almost guarantee that even if you make the histogram touch the right side, which a lot of photographers will tell you, don't, don't let it touch the right side. But even if you make it touch the right side, there's more room in most raw files to recover highlights, even when they're kind of, you know, it just uh, barely even if there's touching. blinkies. Yeah. Yeah. Even if there's blinkies, um, there's room, more room because it's based off of the JPEG. So I can guarantee that, that there's a little bit more room there. Second thing that can affect the histogram is, and it's kind of related to it being a JPEG, will be like the white balance. The white balance, if you have it completely wrong for your scene, is going to change how the histogram looks when you look when you're reviewing the photo. So even though white balance is something that's super correctable in post, it's helpful or you really need to try to get it right in camera so that that histogram is right. If you're going to do ETTR, if you're not doing ETTR, then it's not that nearly as big a deal. But those are the two things that kind of you have to consider with histogram. And it's the best tool that you have in your camera to judge exposure. There's not anything else that I know of that does a better job. Now, there might be some out-of-camera things you can do with like other types of light meters or some other stuff we're not going to talk about today. But in camera, the histogram is the very best tool you have to, to get as accurate a picture of exposure as you can get so hey connor do you use histograms um i do i don't i, I don't swear by them in the same way that you do <laughs> um but yeah no I, I think that histograms are actually very useful uh, that's usually when i'm shooting in studio and getting my lighting set up i will be using my histograms throughout that entire process to make sure that my lights really are about where i want them to be because i know for a fact everything's going to look dark on the lcd and uh, this is assuming i do what i'm normally do in studio where I'm shooting on black paper. So I know I'm going to have a ton of black on the LCD and I want to look at my histogram to see, okay, yeah, of course, there's a lot of information over on that side, but where is my little spike of information? That spike when I'm looking at my histogram is the exposure of the skin, is the exposure of the person and where my light is. So I'll use my histogram specifically knowing that, you know what, this is going to look really underexposed unless I'm looking at the information of exactly where those skin tones are actually sitting. And that's how I'll dial in my lights oftentimes. Perfect. Okay, yeah, I, I love the histogram. If, if listeners don't know how to use a histogram, how to read it, how to use it, then 
I do have a photo taco episode <laughs> about it. So you can find that at a link in the show notes. All right. So number four, the next piece of advice is take multiple shots. It's like the most beautiful part of digital photography. You can take as many shots as you have memory card and battery for. <laughs> and uh, so, so why not? Why not do that? Now, there might be some places where... Uh, you're taking a picture of an action shot and you can't actually take more than one. So you, you got to get that ready and you got to nail that in the one shot. But in a lot of cases, we can do, we can take a lot of shots of what we are shoot, uh, the, you know, the photo and we can change some settings and, and, you know, try to get the shot for landscape well, I, bracketing. Go ahead, Connor. I, I would argue that even in the instances of action shots, sure, you can't take multiple shots for that particular shot, but you should be, if you're in a situation where you're trying to get action shots, you should be taking your test shots ahead of time and trying to, to sure, figure out oh, exactly yeah. what it is. So it's, even in that situation, you can dial everything in ahead of time, get your ETTL proper. I, I It's instances where you have action that is also very crucial to saving your butt like um weddings and things of that sort when you don't want to miss the kiss i I might play it a little safe in those instances but you know if it's a sport or something like that where you know maybe you'll have one really great instance um yeah i I might push it just a little bit and dial everything ahead of time and just make sure that i'm i'm roughly where i'm supposed to be Right. So in, in landscapes, because you usually have all kinds of time to, to do landscapes, well, within some yeah, parameters, yeah. But, but you have more time than like the wedding kiss yes, <laughs> by, by quite a bit. Then you can do something like the, the automated bracketing. Most, a lot of cameras have the ability to bracket images and automatically take like between three, five, some do seven or nine shots. And, um, and it, you, you kind of set where you want the, the perfect exposure to be, and then it will back off, uh, you know, underexpose a few shots and then take your middle shot and then overexpose a few shots. And, and that middle shot's the one that's kind of the perfect exposure. So that's a fabulous way to do it at the landscape. And, and you set it up so that it takes those photos and then you have them in post. So if you, if you go and do just a slight ETTR as your middle exposure, you're going to have two, uh, probably, well, one shot under, one shot over that, uh, depending on what camera and how many brackets you have to take. And then you can d- decide which one do you want to use. If you guessed kind of wrong on the ETTR middle one, you can go use the underexposed one and, and have a good shot. Or if you didn't quite get it too bright enough, and actually the one that was overexposed by more ha- it didn't uh, blow out the highlights, then you now have a brighter version of it than you thought. And that's a, a great position to be in. Plus, you can blend them if you need to do some exposure blending and pull like the, the brightest of the highlights out of the underexposed one and the lowest shadows out of the highest one and so on and and you have some really good options there so taking multiple shots is my tip number four for ettr play around with it do some testing um, set up your shot like like connor was saying with the action if if you only get one shot take a whole bunch of test shots in front of that so that you can find out exactly where you're comfortable doing the exposure if you absolutely cannot miss this shot you may not want to do ettr because you might overexpose something and you don't want to have a you don't want to cross that line so if it's super important maybe don't approach that line just <laughs> just be safe and and make sure that that you're going to get a, a shot out of it so that's the the next one is number four is take multiple shots all right number five and this is the one that's most important to me because mm-hmm. you if you get number five you're going to have the first several here you're you're going to know how to use your camera enough so number five is 
know the limits of your camera. Really, I guess maybe not even just know the limits, but know your camera. And this comes by experience, doing a lot of shooting. If, if you're listening to podcasts and you aren't going out and shooting a lot to implement and, and try the things that you're hearing, you're missing a massive opportunity to learn and a way to like cement it in your head. That's the only way at least it made sense for me. I, I, what we talked about, I, I was taking notes with me when I was first using the camera because I could not remember aperture, shutter, ISO. I, it just stuff did not stick. And I had to go through shot like thousands and thousands of shots before it started to become almost automatic in how I was thinking about it. Plus, I got muscle memory on the buttons so that I was changing settings without having to, you know, stare at them for a long time <laughs> and figure out where they were. So, yeah, doing a lot of shooting with your camera so that you know uh, a lot where those lines are. How far can you push the exposure on your specific camera before stuff usually starts ending up being a problem? And I've done enough shooting on that with my 7D Mark II that I know exactly where those lines are. Yeah. I know right out of the gate as I'm going to go set up a shot. As I do metering and I do it, even if I do it perfectly, I am really safe in going two-thirds of a stop over the middle. Absolutely. Every time I've done it, I never have blown out stuff so much that I, I don't have the detail I need. It's a totally safe setting for me on the 7D Mark II. Now, that doesn't mean that that's going to work on every Canon camera. It doesn't mean it's going to work on any other kind of camera. But on my 7D Mark II, I know from experience, because I have tried this a lot, I can go two-thirds of a stop over and I am fully safe. It's going to be... It's it's as safe as putting it on the middle, for sure. Yeah. I, I All of that that you said there is is something that... Man, I just want to I want to extra emphasize all of that because understanding the theory behind things is really useful. But I mean, I know for my instance, I listen to these podcasts and many others and watch tons of videos and learn tons and tons and tons of theory. And I'm sure all of that was really helpful. But realistically, the application of theory really is the thing that cements things in your mind. You can say, okay, well, I I understand the concept of the exposure triangle. I understand how aperture works. I understand how shutter speed works. I understand how ISO works. But if you really haven't gone out and practiced it all, when you're in the moment, you're going to choke. You're not going to yeah, remember those yeah. things perfectly. You might remember some of them and then kind of forget other things. And it's by making those mistakes that you start testing your camera and seeing, okay, well, I, oftentimes it's not even an intentional, ooh, I, I overexposed by two stops on purpose. It's like, oh, I was trying to do a little bit of ETTR and then the light <laughs> right. changed. And you know what? I found out that in this kind of situation I can actually recover my file relatively well even though it was two right. stops overexposed but I because of putting getting out there and and using my camera I've learned that for my camera I can comfortably go plus or minus a stop relatively easily I have I have no real problem if I'm right. shooting out in ambient light um, I am much less picky I take less time because I, I've realized oh you know what the time I'm taking to get my camera set right. is when I'm working with people is actually um, detrimental to this interaction I'd rather be able to kind of pull it up quickly get a few shots talk with them again move around um, shoot again and and learning like, oh, okay, I know exactly how far I can push my images in one direction or the other and not really have to be concerned at all because my camera can handle that is something that I wouldn't know without going out and actually playing around and practicing these things and taking all those photos and testing the limits and knowing the limits of my camera. 
Right. Right. Okay. So, so knowing your camera and getting a lot of experience shooting with it is going to be an important part. And a, a, a really important area to discover within that testing is what you're going to do with ISO. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because, so ETTR, the way it's most effective is when you're using just shutter speed and aperture to get there. Because you're, you're going to bring the best quality of light that you can to that sensor in the right, uh, so, so that it's right to the limit, but not past it. And that's going to produce the best result. That is not, and in general, I'm, I'm going to have to overgeneralize here just to give a recommendation. I would recommend you don't use ISO to do that, to go to ETTR. That's not true across the board. It's an overgeneralization. But as you're trying to use ETTR, I would not consider ISO one of the things that you will do to get that, that little line on the exposure scale over the zero mark and, and into the right-hand side. I, I just wouldn't use ISO. I'd leave it at 100 and use the other two factors. If you have enough light to get there, use the other two, oh, the okay. shutter and aperture, to get there. I was, okay? was going to say, if you're, if you're pushing things, uh, like if you're on the low end of what your shutter speed can handle and you're as wide open as you right. possibly can be, it, would you say that that's okay now? Uh, okay, I, so is there it, another an excellent question. Yeah, so it's an excellent question, and there are situations... Like, this is why you really have to get in there and know your camera. Yeah. Cameras all handle ISO differently, very, very differently from one another, even within the same line of cameras. One Canon model to another, the way they work with ISO is different. They are not going to be the same. And the reason I'm going to recommend you don't necessarily use ISO to push your your let's give a good example that astro world that i was in yeah and when i was trying to do the astrophotography you cannot use iso to make it so that you even really get to the middle it's not going to be there you have so such little light that it's not going to happen if if you push it all the way out to like the limits of your iso range you might be able to get to the middle and maybe even a little beyond it on some newer cameras but it's going to be almost useless probably when you go look at it on the computer. It's, it's just not great. And here's why. It's not the noise. The noise is not the factor. It's what everyone jumps to when you talk about ISO is, oh, the noise, the noise, the noise. It's, uh, it's a whole another podcast episode I have not yet done where I want to talk about ISO does not cause noise. And I want, <laughs> I want to go through that and explain why I say it that way. I don't have one to point anyone to yet. But... Not the noise is not the factor. It's the uh, the impact increased ISO has on dynamic range that is the factor. Why I say don't increase the ISO if you don't have to. If you have enough light to get there without increasing the ISO, your the dynamic range of your camera is going to be the best it can be at ISO one hundred. You know the lowest ISO you've got. And it doesn't matter. Yes, there are cameras that the noise factor is dealt with differently on some cameras. We talked about cannons and the shadows. There's noise. Um, Some of them handle that a little better, but it doesn't matter which digital camera you're talking about. As you increase the ISO, the dynamic range goes down. It's almost linear. Every step up you make on the ISO makes one step down on the dynamic range. And um, there's a really excellent resource that can illustrate this for you. So it's not just me saying it. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's over at photonstophotos.net. It's Bill Claff's really good website. I actually did a photo talk episode with Bill where we talked about something he's created called photographic dynamic range. 
and he has done a lot of scientific research to figure out how to quantify dynamic range and illustrate what the impact is to it as you increase the ISO. It's fabulous, fabulous data to have. And um, I didn't use it to figure out where I wanted to take my ISO when I'm trying to do exposures in really dark situations. But I've used it now to figure out my what level of the photographic dynamic range I'm I'm okay with. So if you go look at any of these charts, and there'll be a link to it in the show notes, uh, he has on the left hand side this unit of photographic dynamic range. It's something he's invented. It's a, a metric he created. It's not standardized, but it should be because it's very good. And what I have discovered as I have done a lot of ISO shooting with my camera is I am good with how the image looks up to ISO 2500 on my 7D Mark II, which corresponds to a scale on his photographic dynamic range of six. So anything six or higher, I'm happy with with the images that I get out of it. And again, it's not a measurement of noise. It's a measurement of the dynamic range. And in the case of my camera, anything above 2500, it starts looking really muddy on the edges. You you start losing Mm, the distinction between the edges. And that's a it's a manifestation of how dynamic range is being lost. And at that point with my 7D Mark II, it's just too much muddiness. And it won't matter how much noise is there and how much noise reduction I use or any of those factors, the dynamic range has been so severely limited that I'm no longer happy with images when I shoot them at higher than that. So I know by my own experience and how I like my images, I'm never going to shoot above ISO 2500 on my Canon 70 Mark II ever. It's never going to be dialed in like that. I would rather have things be underexposed than go above that on the ISO because I won't be happy with the image. It won't have the detail, the edge detail that I want on my images. And I got to figure out another way to get more light in there than increasing the ISO beyond that. Now that's just me. It's a subjective kind of thing. Yeah. (laughs) You'd have to have a lot of experience with your camera, but I know that that's way. And what it enabled me to do when I bought my wife, a Canon 80D camera, um, I could look at the, the photographic dynamic range that Bill evaluated on that camera and I know I can take it up to 3,200 and still get a PDR of six or or greater. So I know I have just a slight bit more dynamic range available to me at high ISOs in that ADD than I do in my 7D Mark II. And he's got a ton of cameras that he's done this for. And I'm not, I'm not saying six is what everyone should be shooting for because it's a subjective evaluation. It's how I personally have done my testing, seen the images, and I know as I'm trying to do ETTR, I'll take ISO if as the last factor. There's no other way to get better light in there. And I'll take it up to 2,500 and no higher. But <laughs> uh, you, you have to kind of <laughs> test it and see for yourself. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, like, I I appreciate that that's what you do. I, I could not imagine a situation where I wouldn't be okay with pushing it higher if it needed to be higher. I, I have my limits. I know where my ISO should be for um, what I think looks good and when it starts sure, getting sure. too muddy and not great. Um, but and, and usually the times when I'm doing this is the times when I'm shooting weddings and you know, there are moments where you can't use a flash and it's in a dark room at, right, at night right. or something like that. But those instances are also 
typically less important. It's more like I'm shooting to shoot. These are going to be small photos in, in the album anyway. It's nothing that they're going to print out large. So in that instance, I say, okay, I'm sacrificing image quality. I, I got to do it. That's fine. Um, I can't imagine putting that hard of a limit where I say, nope, I'm not shooting any higher than this because I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I don't care how noisy it gets. Just give me more ISO. I'll just keep bumping it if I have to. So and the way I really came to figure out what I was comfortable with uh, was shooting high school basketball. Ah, so yeah. that that challenged like crazy what I can do with my camera. You have to have a high shutter speed to try to freeze the action. You have to have mm-hmm. I, I wanted. I, well, I can only go so far on, on opening up with the aperture. I, I, I have a lens that goes 2.8 and, and that's the, that's the limit. That's, limit all, is, that's all yeah. I can do. So, so, uh, you know, and, and then it is way, it's like four stops underexposed still when I, when I'm in there and I have done all kinds of different ISO settings in shooting those high school games. I've done it for a couple years now. So I've had lots of experience and, and practice doing it. And it, it got so bad at maybe about 6,400. Uh, I thought the camera wasn't focusing properly because it was that muddy and <laughs> oh, looked yeah. that bad. No, no, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. That that muddiness, that lack of it, it, it's not just that you have noise on your photo. It's that no. truly like the edges just it looks mushy, it looks out of focus, and you say no, but that is like there's nothing that's more in focus than that. That is the thing. Right. That is right. where I focused. And and so I know exactly what you're talking about. Um I, I just usually pray that I am never going to be in a situation where I'm going <laughs> to have to do all of those things and that sharpness is important. Yeah. And the good thing, the good news is there's enough light in the gyms that 2,500 gets me close enough that when I go in post, I can increase the exposure and I'm, I'm getting very, very acceptable shots. Yeah. So, so that's good. Uh, yeah. Would a full frame camera be able to help me better? Yeah, it probably would. It probably, I know for sure the Sony stuff would, yeah. has much, much better ISO dynamic range capabilities. And I could go, I could crank that up a lot higher. I've, I've consulted Bill's charts a lot to see how that would <laughs> impact it. And, and that would make a massive, massive difference. But I'm, I'm getting the shot still with what I have. And I, I don't have to invest a whole lot of more money in, in a new, new gear to be able to get there. So, it's by experience. So I, it's just as you're doing ETTR, the way I'm, I'm recommending photographers think about it, if you haven't used this technique, use shutter and aperture as the two ways to try to get there and only go to ISO if you have to and try to figure out where you're comfortable with that limit being in the ISO. You, you just do some testing and see where it is that you like the images ending up. Uh, all right. I think that covers it, Connor. I think it does. I can't think of anything else to say. <laughs> I, I totally let you get way too technical with that, but I was actually very interested in just listening. <laughs> so like, okay, whatever. This is fine. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see. We'll see what the listeners have to say if, if you let me go too far there. But we also were having kind of some Skype issues, so I couldn't always hear you along the way. So hopefully, hopefully, because uh, Connor recorded on his end, hopefully we'll be able to have at least a clean audio. Yeah. But we did have we did have some challenges there. Skype was not our friend as we recorded this today. Uh, all right, let's go to the doodads. Let's talk about all that. Right. So, Connor, what do you have for doodads? So, my doodad is usually usually when we're looking at doodads, we're looking at relatively inexpensive things that you can buy, and this is not that. Um, my doodad is the <laughs> I, I think it's pronounced Ji Yoon. Yeah, 
I'm going to go with that. Zhiyun Crane wow. 2. So it's Z-H-I-Y-U-N Crane 2. It's an electric gimbal, um, similar to the, the DJI Ronin. I'm sure people have seen that. A little bit cheaper and with some different f- features, I decided to get this because I am going to Ireland. I leave for Ireland in two days, and then while I'm there, I'm going to be filming some educational material. And I figured, you know what? It would be probably pretty good to have some form of stabilization beyond a tripod while I'm out traveling around a, a different country. Um, so I kind of dug deep in the pockets and sprung for this. I think that it runs around $650, if I remember correctly, what I just spent on it. Um, but it handles my my Canon 6D and my 24-70 perfectly fine. It, it does a great job with that. It also has this awesome follow focus wheel. So for any of you video people, um, all that means is that it allows me to adjust the focus of my camera without having to touch my camera itself. Similarly, oh, I'm able yeah. to adjust my aperture, my shutter speed, my ISO, all from the actual gimbal part, the handle part that I hold. And it comes with a nice little tiny tripod that you can use as a hand grip as well. So it's something that I'm not positive I'm going to keep it forever. I, I would love to if I can really put it to use and find great use for it. Um, but I've only kind of put it through its paces for a few days. So before you go out and spend $650, wait until I get back from Ireland and have a better report <laughs> on it. But so far, so good. It seems pretty cool. And that is my doodad for this week. All right. I'm going to go way cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to recommend, uh, so we, we've had a lot of interactions on the Facebook group lately, which we'll talk about in just a second, how you can join that. But we've had a lot there, a lot of questions that have come up where I have photo talk episodes that talk about their question. And so I, <laughs> what I do to, to find those episodes is I go over to photo, photo and I use the search box that's on the site and I type in the, you know, some, something on the title. Like if it was exposed to the right, like we just talked about, I type ETTR in there, hit enter. And there's the, there's the podcast episode where I went over it. And so my doodad of the week is the photo taco search over at phototacopodcast.com. If you have questions about techniques, I've done it for about four years now. Lots of episodes, lots of technical discussion. If you kind of liked how we went through it just now, there's a lot more of it over there at the photo taco podcast. So you can go search for those things and, uh, and help yourself to be able to find um, some, some discussions about those kinds of topics. So good chance I've covered yeah. it in the last four years if you've been over there. So <laughs> there's my doodad. All right. Let's remind everyone about some of the other resources. Most people probably bail by this point. <laughs> but, <laughs> but here we go. This, the, here are the resources for the, for the show. You have masterphotographypodcast.com is the new home for the show. Same thing. You can actually go search on the site for topics for podcast episodes. So a little different kind of take where we, we have kind of what's new and current in the news a lot. But um, you know, there's still a search. So if you want to go search for stuff, you can there. Facebook group, you can ask to join the Master Photography Podcast Facebook group. Uh, there'll be a link to it in the show notes. There's a link to it from masterphotographypodcast.com. Um, and you are going to have to ask to join. So we want to keep it to people who actually listen to the show. We don't want to have spanners or the bots in there. And so uh, you do have to answer a question. You have to, we are going to ask you the, to name a host on the show. And so Connor will work or Jeff will work. 
um, and, or any of the, the guests or, or other hosts that we have on the show. They'll, they'll all work. It's a very simple question. If you actually listen to an episode, then you should be able to answer it and, and we'll let you write in. Um, you can find my work at jsharmanphotos.com or the other podcast I do, phototacopodcast.com, which I already mentioned. And uh, on Facebook, I'm Harmon Jeff. On Twitter, Harmon underscore Jeff. And Instagram, Harmon Jeff. Connor, where can people find you? Um, you can find me at, well, on my website, it's connorhibbs.photography. You can find the other podcast that Erica and I host. Um, that is called the Portrait Session Podcast. You can look it up in iTunes if you don't already subscribe to that. Or you can go over to portraitsessionpodcast.com. And then you can find me on Instagram at Photography. Excellent. All right. So that's going to wrap it up for today's episode. I hope you all enjoyed it and we will see you all again in another seven days. 